0: What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Lawmakers directing millions of dollars in federal funds to projects that employ their spouses. That's according to a new report, which says so-called earmarking is on the rise again. President Joe Biden's nominee to head the National Institutes of Health is in the hot seat. Some are criticizing her past financial ties with pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer. Tesla CEO Elon Musk gave a wide-ranging interview on CNBC. The entrepreneur shared his thoughts on the 2020 election and whether he thought there was election fraud. A federal agency is considering banning chocolate milk and other flavored milk in schools, but experts don't agree on if this would really keep children healthy. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on the potential debt ceiling crisis. This afternoon, Congressional Republicans and President Biden are hosting a bicameral press event to address this. NTD's Melina Weiskop is following the development of this deal and joins us now from Capitol Hill. Melina, where do we stand now on this debt ceiling issue?
1: Hi, Kevin. Good afternoon. So it's looking like a deal is in sight. We saw that attitude change yesterday after their meeting at the White House. McCarthy says he believes that there's a solid structure for these negotiation talks now. And Senate leader Chuck Schumer says he believes there's an understanding of the need for bipartisan cooperation. And as you mentioned, Kevin, both uh, President Biden and congressional Republicans held dueling press conferences to discuss this issue, both sides expressing optimism. Here's what the president had to say this morning.
2: We had a productive meeting yesterday and uh, with all four leaders in the Congress. It was civil and respectful and everyone came to the meeting, I
3: think, in good faith. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget that America will not default.
1: And President Biden cut his trip to Asia short, hinting even more that a deal is in sight. McCarthy told us yesterday after that meeting at the White House that he believes a deal is possible by the end of this week. Today, he continued to express that optimism, expressing high hopes for the final product. Here's McCarthy.
4: Am I optimistic? I'm optimistic for America because of people standing behind me. I'm optimistic of our ability to work together. Do we have obstacles? Yes, we have a big obstacle in the White House. But we're going to change the course of history.
1: Now it's clear that the Republican passed bill will not be the final product. That bill included slashing funding for many of Democrats' top priorities. Uh, House Leader Kevin McCarthy, his challenge now is to really rally his whole conference together and try to get every Republican in the House on board with whatever deal he meets with the White House because he is working within such a slim majority over there on the house side now another bit of information to point out is that senate republicans recently drew a red line saying that they would not vote for any clean debt ceiling hike which essentially means that uh, the debt ceiling would be raised without any budget mechanisms attached that's what democrats had been pushing for all along however now we see that change in attitude from the democrat side willing to work with republicans on this and as this timeline is pressing, senators could cancel their recess next week so that they can quickly pass something should a deal be met in the coming days. Kevin, back to you.
0: Melina, thank you so much for the update. This discussion to reach a deal certainly seems promising to avoid a default on the nation's debt. We now hear from an expert on how a deal could take shape and steps to avoid this recurring problem. Joining me now is Richard Stern, the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Richard, it is great to have you with us today. And it's great to be here today. Thank you again. Both sides, the White House and Congress, are hopeful to reach a deal to raise the debt ceiling. McCarthy says it's possible by the end of the week. The GOP wants work requirements to get SNAP, and they also want caps on spending and changes to the energy permitting, whereas the White House says it's a no deal if they take away health coverage or if they push Americans into poverty. What common ground is expected here?
5: Well, so I think here's the the core part about this. The White House is very out of step with even their own base, right? Most people in this country believe that if you can work, you should work. They don't like the idea of stealing from people who do work hard to give it to people who could work but stay out of the labor force. That's why prices are so high. It's why store shelves are empty. It's why the American middle class is being squeezed. So there is common ground here to have work requirements, to make sure the people that are getting welfare benefits that can work, do work. The common ground is just not with the White House specifically. But I'm optimistic that we can get that kind of good group of Democrats that believe in that together with conservatives to get that kind of thing done.
0: Hopefully they can avoid a catastrophe here. Now, the American banker published an article saying that they should do away with the debt ceiling and just pass a balanced budget amendment. Some of the ideas in the past have said this could be a percentage of the GDP with a hardline rule saying you can't raise taxes and you can't raise the debt ceiling. They say it's a bad idea, but maybe there's a more moderate approach, like they're suggesting, to only allow the deficit spending, maybe in times of emergency, and give it 10 years to ramp up to that balanced budget. What are your thoughts here?
5: So I love the idea of a balanced budget amendment. Uh, Heritage has featured it in our annual budget blueprint we put out. I I was a former congressional staffer, and I've worked on many of those proposals you talked about there. But I think here's the key part about this. The debt ceiling and a balanced budget amendment, really all of these things, these are indispensable tools for the American people to ward off against an abusive government that has no check on how much of of your paycheck the government can steal to fund their friends and the increasingly woken weaponized bureaucracy. So I would love the idea of getting a balanced budget amendment, but to be fair, at the moment, the one tool like that we have is the debt ceiling. It is crucial that the American people get a win out of the debt ceiling. And that win, of course, is to stop having their paychecks siphoned off, to stop being put under the crushing weight of inflation tax. That's what's really important here. That's what we need to keep the country from defaulting, not so much the government.
0: Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely.
5: So you know, right now what happens is that if, if you or I sign a loan, right, we, we add to our credit card, you and I have agreed to pay back that debt with money that you and I worked hard. To earn. When the government signs a debt, when it takes on debt, it's agreeing to pay back that money with money you earned, not that the government earned. The government can't earn money. So that's what the debt ceiling is there for. It's there to stop the government with its infinite political power from being able to just steal as much of your paycheck as it wants to spend money on the things that federal bureaucrats decide to spend money on. So that's why it's important that if the debt ceiling is raised, it's raised as conservatives in the House laid out, in a way that would be good for the economy, that would allow people to keep more of their hard-earned money, and get the government's boot off of the, the throats of the American people.
0: And how do you suggest they do that, given this inherent problem that the government is spending someone else's money?
5: So I, I think one thing you're starting to see is the left is buckling, right? They they never actually put up on the floor of either the House or Senate their quote preferred clean debt ceiling increase. They don't even have the votes for it on their side. The only plan that's in fact passed any chamber of Congress is the limit save growth, the conservative plan, like I said, to cut government spending, to do the permitting reform work requirements you're talking about, things to grow the economy that protect the American middle class. So you're already starting to see the left understand, at least enough of them that their policies of government spending, of taking from your paycheck caused inflation, have caused this burden that that the American people are seeing. So I think you are starting to see common ground, even if the White House press doesn't uh, doesn't wanna let you see it.
0: Richard Stern at the Heritage Foundation, it's really great to hear from you. And pleasure to be here again, thank you guys so much. Despite reforms, federal lawmakers are still sending millions of dollars to local projects in their home states. That's according to a new report, which says so-called earmarking is on the rise. Here are the details.
2: Earmarks are actions that direct federal funds to specific local projects in lawmakers' home states and districts. Supporters of earmarks say federal representatives know their local communities very well. So according to them, it makes sense that they direct federal funds to certain local projects. Back in 2021, Democrats brought back congressional earmarks. That was after a 10-year halt because the program was met with scandals and criticism. When the program came back, lawmakers said the spending program would be different. Then House Appropriations Chair said at the time that our bipartisan reforms will produce a small number of projects with strong community support, a transparent process where no member's family can benefit. However, a new report by The Messenger shows that four Democratic lawmakers have allocated millions of dollars to projects that employ their spouses. The findings reportedly came from more than 1,000 pages of Congressional Appropriations records. One example is Congressman Thompson of California, who allocated almost $2 million to a local hospital. His wife is employed as a nurse at that hospital. A spokesman said that neither her pay nor her position have been or will be impacted by the funding. He also said that they sought guidance from the House Ethics Committee regarding the request. In his words, the ethics committee informed us that the decision to support the project must be made on the project's merits, which is how we evaluated the project. The money was reportedly allocated to repair the water system after a fire in the region. Roll Call reports that there's also been an increase in Senate Republicans requesting earmarks from 16 to 17 in the past two years, which is in line with House Republican requests.
0: President Joe Biden's choice to head the National Institutes of Health is under scrutiny. The nominee took in hundreds of millions of dollars from the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer in recent years. Entities Daniel Monahan has more on the candidate.
4: Dr. Monica Bertagnoli received nearly $250 million in research funding from Pfizer from 2016 to 2021. Bertinoli has also received funding from other pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Janssen and AstraZeneca, totaling over $20 million since 2016. The hefty sums are raising concerns about whether she'd serve the public independently. Democrat presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy says the immense funding amounts illustrated the revolving door between well-connected scientists and government positions. Former Republican congressional candidate Robbie Starbuck wrote on social media, so basically Joe Biden's nominating Pfizer to run the National Institutes of Health. This is open, evil, big pharma corruption. The science will be what Pfizer wants it to be. In a statement, President Biden called Bertinoli a world-class physician scientist whose vision and leadership will ensure the NIH continues to be an engine of innovation to improve the health of the American people.
6: I think we can all embrace President Biden's goal to end cancer as we know it.
4: Bertinoli became director of the National Cancer Institute, which is part of the NIH, in 2022. Before that, she chaired the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology, which develops and carries out clinical trials for potential cancer treatments. Bertinoli previously said the received funds were actually contracts between the pharmaceutical companies and the alliance, and that the Pfizer funding was for a single large international breast cancer clinical trial with over 6,000 patients. The U.S. Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions will take up Bertinoli's nomination. Daniel Monahan, NTD News.
0: Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron won the Republican primary for Kentucky governor on Tuesday. He will face incumbent Governor Andy Bashir in the general election in November. Here's Cameron speaking to supporters.
4: Tonight we prove that here in Kentucky the American dream is alive and well because here in Kentucky you aren't judged by the color of your skin but by the content of your character.
0: The Trump-backed Cameron won out against the stacked field of 12 GOP candidates with nearly 47% of the vote. Kentucky Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Carls came in second with about 22% of the vote. Former U.N. Ambassador Kelly Kraft came in third with about 18%. Kelly was backed by a Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, and presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Cameron's November opponent, Governor Andy Bashir, is a popular Democratic governor in a Republican-dominated state. Elon Musk weighs in on the 2020 election, whether it was stolen, and whether he regrets how he voted. Here's a snippet from his interview with CNBC.
7: I, 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 I don't think it,
4: it, it, was, it was a stolen election. Um, um, but by the same token, if, if somebody's going to say that there's, there's never any election fraud anywhere, this is obviously also false. Yep. Um, if, if, you, if, you, if 100 million people vote, the probability that the fraud is zero is zero.
0: Musk acknowledged voting for President Biden in 2020. He didn't comment on whether he regrets that, instead saying, I wish we could have just a normal human being as president. Musk also discussed AI, calling it a double-edged sword. He said there was a strong probability that it will make life much better and some chance that it goes wrong and destroys humanity. The Twitter CEO also voiced his concern over the way the Federal Reserve makes decisions. He commented that they operate with too much stale data, meaning they don't respond to the economy quickly enough. House Democrats are looking to expel indicted GOP Representative George Santos from Congress. Democratic Representative Robert Garcia introduced a resolution yesterday to force a floor vote. House Republicans have until Thursday to schedule the vote. Two-thirds of the House would have to vote in favor for the congressman from New York to be expelled. Republicans could vote to table the effort or refer it to the House Ethics Committee for consideration. Both efforts require a majority vote. Santos is facing federal charges of fraud, money laundering and theft of public funds. He has denied the charges and has pleaded not guilty. Here's what Garcia and Speaker McCarthy said yesterday.
2: He's already admitted to that. He's already admitted to many of his lies. And so now is an opportunity to hold him accountable. And the Republicans in the House are going to actually have to go on record um, and make a decision about if they're going to actually stand for truth and accountability or if they're going to stand with someone that's clearly a liar and has admitted to an actual crime.
4: I think the George Santos indictment is very serious. I also know in America you're innocent to proven guilty, but I don't want to sit around and wait. So what I would like to do is move this to ethics. I think I would like the House. To take up this work and look at it i think we can look at this very quickly and come to a conclusion on what george santos did and did not do through ethics a safe bipartisan committee equal number of republicans and democrats and i think that's when you bring it back to congress
0: mccarthy says he will not support santos's reelection bid nine house republicans have called on the congressman to resign including six from new york an olympic gold medal winner is now pirouetting into politics Sarah Hughes was the 2002 Winter Olympics figure skating champion. She is now a Democratic candidate for New York's 4th Congressional District. That position is presently held by GOP Representative Anthony Despacito, who won by a slim majority in 2020. Hughes says her goals include attacking the high cost of living in Long Island and to get so-called assault weapons off the streets. She is a 2009 graduate of Yale University. The Massachusetts Attorney General is resigning she feels her presence would be a distraction as she's been under investigation following her appearance at a Democratic fundraiser. Rachel Rollins plans to resign this week. She started in position in January 2022. After the Boston Herald published an article about her fundraiser appearance, she tweeted that she had approval to meet First Lady Jill Biden there and that she left the fundraiser early to attend community events. The Justice Department released an ethics investigation report into her fundraising attendance and other issues. The U.S. Office of the Special Counsel also opened an investigation. In her work, Rollins is known for refusing to prosecute low-level criminal offenses. More worries in the commercial real estate sector, this because more office space is now vacant as the pandemic normalized work from home. Here's more
8: trouble may be brewing within the U.S. commercial real estate industry. That's according to a New Bank of America survey of 289 fund managers. The survey also revealed they believe commercial real estate could cause further credit problems or financial issues in the U.S. economy. Commercial real estate refers to properties that are primarily used for business purposes, like offices, for example. And offices have been a source of worry, as real estate veteran Robert Helms points out.
9: Office is uh, concerned across the board. So there's a bunch of office properties out there that have higher than normal vacancy right now because either there aren't as many people working in the office or the whole workforce has gone home and hasn't come back. And that's gonna affect uh, that landlord for sure and their ability to pay the mortgage.
8: The pandemic normalized work from home and many companies have permanently gone remote or are following a hybrid work model. Nearly 20% of office spaces are currently empty across the United States. That's according to global commercial real estate services firm Cushman & Wakefield.
9: What happens when a landlord can't make their mortgage payment is the bank is in trouble. The bank has that loan, and that can have an additional trickle effect to the health of the bank. With the bank failures that we're seeing, there's definitely the consensus that if real estate goes bad in any sector, then we're going to see more banking go bad.
8: About $1.2 trillion in office space debt is going to be due in the next two years. The bulk of the debt is owed to smaller regional banks, which are already in turmoil in recent weeks. Adding fuel to the flame are potentially higher interest rates on those properties
9: factors that have everybody concerned about commercial real estate, primarily the increase in interest rates. And we have a whole bunch of folks who got into commercial properties in the 25 to 4% interest rate range that are looking at this year, next year, and the year after that having to refinance at much higher rates. Boston Consulting
8: Group estimated that 60 to 65% of current U.S. office space will not be needed.
0: Investment on the basis of ESG is under fire again, this time in a legal challenge in New York. We hear from an expert what the plaintiffs have to show and what will be revealed if it goes to trial. Have a listen. Please welcome Kevin Stockland, reporter for The Epic Times and producer of the Shadow State documentary and also former Wall Street banker. Kevin, it's great to have you with us.
10: Thank you for having me on.
0: New York City public workers are suing the city. They say it's abusing the retirement fund to pursue a political agenda, namely this environmental social governance investing. The workers say it hurts their investment bottom line, whereas the city says if they consider these climate and social justice issues, that's good risk management. Can you explain what that means?
10: Yeah. so the supporters of this uh, ESG, environmental social governance movement, uh, are are trying to uh, essentially characterize this process as just good risk management. They say this is not politics at all. Uh, This is just us being prudent asset managers and trying to boost returns for pensioners.
0: So are these pension managers allowed to decide what
10: they consider a risk? Well, New York is a very liberal state when it comes to their pension money. They are actually at a city and a state level uh, mandating that uh, their pension funds be uh, be taking ESG into consideration when they invest their money. So, while 24 states on the conservative side have actually banned their pension money, their pension funds from investing according to ESG criteria, New York is one of the states that actually pushes their pension funds to invest this way. And so how much
0: damage would the public workers have to show that ESG is causing in order for them to win in court?
10: Well, so it's going to be a very interesting decision and I think a, a very interesting precedent whether or not this actually is a good investment tool or whether this is using your money to support political causes. But there have been reports from numerous academic sources, Harvard, University Columbia, London School of Economics, University of South Carolina, Boston University, and they all suggest that ESG investing actually harms investment returns. Trying to quantify that, generally they've been uh, between uh, 75 basis points and, and a percent reduction. But over time, losing a percent uh, on your returns is an, makes an enormous difference to the funds that are available to you for retirement. In addition, uh, the CEO of Vanguard, this the world's second largest asset manager, And the chief investment officer of State Street, the world's third largest asset manager, have publicly come out in the last few months and said that there is no advantage whatsoever to ESG investing. So I think New York State is going to have a hard time defending what they're doing with this pension money.
0: Kevin, if someone wants to put money away for their retirement and they invest in a private firm they can move their money around if they don't like the way it's being invested, whereas these public workers have no choice because it's a public pension system. How does this play into this?
10: Yeah, so uh, as you say, with your private money, you do have options with your 401ks and things like that. Uh, State employees, it's different. Um, So the pension funds are directed by the comptroller of the city of New York, uh, also the comptroller of the state for state employees. So they're basically directing these funds and these asset managers are deciding where this money is going and what causes they want to support. IS THIS SOMETHING THAT THE COURTS NEED TO DECIDE OR DOES THIS HAPPEN ON THE
0: LEGISLATURE LEVEL?
10: Um, WELL, SO STATE PENSION FUNDS ARE REGULATED BY STATES. Um, SO IT IS UP TO THE STATES TO DECIDE HOW THEIR MONEY IS GOING TO BE INVESTED. BUT THE FACT THAT uh, THIS IS NOW GOING TO COURT MEANS THAT THERE WILL BE SOME COURT DECISIONS ABOUT WHETHER THIS ACTUALLY IS uh, PRUDENT RISK MANAGEMENT OR AN ABUSE OF PENSIONERS' MONEY. SO I, I THINK THE COURTS ARE GOING TO HAVE A SAY IN THIS.
0: And how likely do you think this is to go to court?
10: Well, the next step is that um, these uh, state pension managers are, are going to try to get the case dismissed. Uh, lawyers feel that they have a pretty strong case and that they're going to get through that and this case will not be dismissed. So the next phase is going to be discovery. And uh, these asset managers are going to have to hand over uh, their correspondence, all these documents about how they make decisions, um, any collusion they may do with um, climate clubs like Climate Action 100 and things like that. So uh, we're going to learn a lot about this process of how these investment managers make these decisions and whether they are, in fact, in the interest of pensioners or not.
0: Kevin Stockland, reporter for The Epoch Times, it's great to hear your analysis.
10: Thanks for having me on.
0: A federal agency is considering a ban on chocolate milk and other flavored milk in public school lunchrooms. It hopes the ban could help curb childhood obesity and chronic disease. This follows a nutrition proposal by the Department of Agriculture to limit sodium and added sugars for school students. Under the proposal, high school students could still drink flavored milk, but in limited amounts. For elementary schools and middle schools, it would be banned. The proposal has sparked competing opinions. While some health experts are supportive of the ban, others say children prefer flavored milk and can still get needed nutrients from it. Some regions have already enacted their own bans, like San Francisco and Washington, D.C. But New York was unsuccessful in getting its ban off the ground after backlash from parents. Coming up, the federal government clarifies how U.S. companies can get tax credits for making solar panels But some say it's still a win for China's industry. A former British Prime Minister is in Taiwan and advocating for unwavering support. We'll have the details and analysis for you when we return. U.S. companies can get tax credits for making solar panels even if they're made in China. Here's Entity's Tiffany Meyer with more on how that's possible.
11: First up, American-made solar panels, but are they really crafted on U.S. soil? The Treasury Department is clarifying what counts as being made in America, saying on Friday companies can claim tax credits even if their panels are entirely made in China. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, companies can qualify for tax credits if 40% of the panel's components are made in the U.S. That's to boost domestic jobs in the face of China's dominance in the sector. The Treasury also offering an additional credit, up to 10%, for solar panels assembled in the U.S., even if the cells and wafers are made in other countries like China. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen calling these tax credits key to driving investment and ensuring all Americans share in the growth of the green energy economy. Investors responded with the top U.S. solar manufacturer seeing shares surge 26 percent following the news. But not everyone sees it as a win. Executive Director of the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America Coalition Mike Carr calls it a missed opportunity to build a domestic solar manufacturing supply chain. Noting China's dominance in the sector, he added, we fear that this guidance will cement their dominance over these critical pieces of the solar supply chain. This comes as the Biden administration has set the goal of generating 100 percent of the nation's electricity from carbon-free energy
0: sources by 2035. Former British Prime Minister Liz Truss says the West needs to show unwavering support for Taiwan and avoid appeasing China. She's currently in Taiwan at a time when relations between Britain and China are the worst in decades.
2: Former British Prime Minister Liz Truss stressed her support for Taiwan on Wednesday. She said the self-governing island was on the front line for the global battle for freedom.
12: I believe that the
0: biggest danger to the future of Taiwan is fatalism. Not on your part, but a fatalism in the free world that somehow a Chinese takeover of Taiwan is inevitable.
2: Truss is the first former British prime minister to visit Taiwan since Margaret Thatcher in the 1990s. In his recent visit to China, French President Emmanuel Macron tried to distance Europe from any involvement in a conflict over Taiwan. But Truss says,
6: it's completely irresponsible for European nations to wash their hands of Taiwan on the grounds that it's a long way away or it's not a
11: core
0: part of our concerns."
2: Trust said China was trying to use its global economic clout to gain dominance and undertake the biggest military buildup in peacetime history. However, she said many in the West chose to appease China because they don't want another Cold War. The British Foreign Secretary said last month it would be a mistake to isolate Beijing. Trust represents a hawkish wing of the governing Conservative Party that opposes the British government's approach to China.
12: This
0: is because there are still too many in the West who are trying to cling on to the idea that we can somehow cooperate with China on issues like climate change as if there's nothing wrong.
2: Trust called on allies to step up economic engagement against China and make sure Taiwan has defensive capabilities. She also urged more cooperation across the Indo Pacific to enhance security in the region. A spokesperson for the Chinese embassy in London criticized her visit, calling it a dangerous political show.
0: Staying on Liz Truss's visit to Taiwan, Entity's London correspondent Malcolm Hudson met with a UK politician who said Truss's idea of an economic NATO is a good idea. Speaking in Taiwan,
13: Former Prime Minister Liz Truss warned of the threat China poses to the island nation and the world. She urged Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to deliver on the pledges he made to clamp down on China. British politician Baroness de said the mechanisms Truss proposed, such as an economic NATO against China, were a good idea.
6: She talks about sort of having um, um, sort of less uh, dependence on China and preparing for that um, by actually looking far ahead, which is something that China does. But I think that here in the UK and possibly in many sort of democracies that um, we have what we might call short-term government.
13: D'Souza is a member of the House of Lords in Britain, the equivalent of the Senate in the US. She said Western democracies don't have long-term thinking in the same way China does. And added, there should be a broader strategy.
6: Cooperation between nations should be part of the UK strategy, and indeed the strategy of many other nations that have to deal with China, but also recognise the human rights abuses and and other sort of bids for power that it's making.
13: The Chinese Communist Party claims Taiwan as part of China, but Taiwan rejects this and has its own independent legal and political systems. The CCP has never ruled Taiwan. The Chinese embassy in Britain has criticised Truss's speech as a dangerous political show and said her action would harm the UK. D'Souza said it's a predictable response from the CCP.
6: There is no real evidence that these kind of um, events which speak out against China actually result in economic damage to the trading relationship between two countries. D'Souza
13: said Truss's aim may have been to prompt the UK to have a more coordinated China strategy. Malcolm Hudson, Entity News, London.
0: The war in Ukraine is isolating Russia from Western countries, and now China appears to be filling in that gap. Here's an example, a Russian port opening its harbor. Here's more. Relations are thawing between Russia and China. After over 160
11: years, Moscow is opening up a major port to Beijing, granting permission for it to ship Chinese goods starting this June. Analysts told news outlet Lienhe Zhaobao that it gives China the upper hand in its relations with Russia and reflects Russia becoming increasingly isolated by the West because of the Ukraine war. The announcement came on Monday. The port in question is called Vladivostok. It's Russia's largest port in the Pacific Ocean. It's also home to Russia's Pacific Fleet. Vladivostok used to be part of China in the 1800s, but Russia annexed it in 1860. Since then, northeastern China lost its ocean access and had to route its goods first on railroads, then through the port of Dalian, an over 600-mile journey. Access to Vladivostok cuts that distance by
0: 80 percent. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, European leaders are tallying the losses inflicted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They're expected to approve a new register of damages during a rare summit. The head of Ukraine's Supreme Court is arrested on bribery charges. The country's anti-corruption bureau calls the case its biggest ever. More shortly here on NTE News Today. Former French President Nicolas Sarkozy has lost his appeal against a 2021 conviction of corruption. His legal team now says they'll challenge the decision. The appeals court upheld the initial ruling of a three-year prison sentence. That ruling said two of those years are suspended and the former president would wear an electronic bracelet instead of going to jail for the remaining year. His lawyer said he had committed no wrongdoing and will now appeal at the nation's highest court. The only other French president to be convicted by a court was Sarkozy's predecessor, who was found guilty of corruption in 2011. In a rare summit of European leaders, the focus of talks was how to hold Russia to account for its war against Ukraine. Over 40 countries have registered for a tally of losses and damage inflicted by Moscow's forces. Some leaders demanded that Russia be made to pay for damages caused in its invasion.
12: European leaders are meeting in Iceland this week for a two-day Council of Europe summit. The focus of the meeting, the war in Ukraine. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the gathering remotely. It follows his tour of European capitals to secure more weapons and aid prior to an anticipated counter-offensive to push back Russian forces.
8: Russia used ballistics, cruise missiles, drones at the same time to make it especially difficult for our defense to save lives,
3: but all lives we are protected.
12: The leaders are expected to approve a new Register of Damages, a mechanism to record and document evidence and claims of damage, loss or injury incurred as a result of the Russian invasion. French President Emmanuel Macron asked all member states to join the registry.
3: I call on all states to adhere to it and to actively contribute to its elaboration.
12: German Chancellor Olaf Scholz demanded that Russia eventually be made to pay for the damages it's caused.
3: The Register of Damages that we want to launch together here in Reykjavik will play a central
8: role in this.
12: Icelandic Prime Minister Katrin Jakobsdottir said 41 countries have already signed the Registry of Damages including member states and observer states.
6: I think it's only fair to say that this is a huge step in ensuring accountability and uh, having tangible deliverables coming out of this summit.
12: This is only the fourth summit of the 46-member Council of Europe since it was founded after World War II. Russia's membership was suspended the day after it invaded Ukraine. Moscow then
0: left the body hours before a vote to expel it. Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Iranian counterpart, Ibrahim Raisi, struck a deal on Wednesday via video link. The pair signed an agreement to finance and build an Iranian railway line. It will be part of a new international north-south transport corridor. The Rasht-Astara railway is seen as an important link in the corridor. It is meant to connect India, Iran, Russia, Azerbaijan and other countries via railways and sea. Russia says the route can rival the Suez Canal as a major global trade route. Putin says the 100-mile railway along the Caspian Sea coast would help to connect Russian ports in the Baltic Sea with Iranian ports in the Indian Ocean and the Gulf. Russia and Iran have been pushed to strengthen their political and economic ties by Western economic sanctions. Russia has renounced a treaty originally intended to maintain a balance of forces in Europe between members of NATO and Warsaw Pact states. The treaty was signed during the Cold War. The Russian deputy foreign minister said the treaty was a relic of the past. He said what other states will do is up to them to decide. The deputy head of Russia's Security Council said the move would allow Russia to deploy forces wherever necessary to ensure its security, including parts of Russia that are in Europe. A U.S. State Department spokesperson said the move further demonstrates Russia's disregard for arms control and is the latest in a series of actions to undermine Europe's security architecture. He also added it changes nothing on the ground. Wildfires have ravaged large areas in Siberia and the Euros in recent weeks. Now residents are coming to terms with their incinerated homes and an uncertain future. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the natural disaster.
14: Located over 1,200 miles from Moscow, the village of Yuldis is home to 800 people. A fire destroyed more than 200 homes here just over a week ago. Alfia Nasarova built the house with her husband, and it's where she raised her two children. Now it's just ashes. Her cousin described the chaos.
6: They ran. Everyone took what they could. Some people took bad linen. Some people documents. We were the same. We took the most necessary things. So I managed to take bed linen, threw in the TV set and the documents and necessary winter things.
14: Local resident Yuri Fatkulin is a firefighter with 21 years of experience. But this fire was like nothing he had ever seen before.
3: We did have houses on fire before, of course. We would put them out. And in the forest, we had seen everything during my 21 years of service. But this is the first time I have experienced such a thing. In 20 minutes, the whole village burnt down. The family had been looking forward to the wedding of his eldest son. We were preparing, preparing the house, cleaned it, repaired. Now he calls every hour asking, where should I come? There is no home. Nothing. A school and local clubhouse are serving as temporary shelters. Neighboring villages are providing relief. We distribute humanitarian aid, organize meetings of leaders with people, food supply, communication with Tatarstan. People call from Kamchatka to St. Petersburg, transferring money, so we are busy with this. The government announced that new houses will be built by September. Locals and volunteers
14: are clearing debris and collecting scrap metal. Most are hoping to rebuild their
3: homes. We will rebuild ourselves. We will definitely build houses here. If we don't build, this ancient village will end, and there are few people left already. The state of emergency in the region
14: continues. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Ukrainian prosecutors say they've arrested the head of the country's Supreme Court. They also released a photo showing stacks of American $100 bills lined up on a couch. Here's more about the alleged corruption.
7: This was the National Anti-Corruption Bureau press conference on Tuesday. Its director did not name the person arrested, only that it was the head of the court and that they were suspected of taking a bribe worth $2.7 million, the highest profile discovery in the agency's history. The current Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is Visevolod Knyatsev, who could not immediately be reached for comment, although the Supreme Court says it's fully cooperating with the investigation and has initiated a process for expressing no confidence in Knyatsev. On Monday, the Anti-Corruption Bureau said it was investigating what it called large-scale corruption at the court. The bribe is said to have been payment for ruling in favor of the finance and credit financial group, and that it might be part of a broader plot to pressure the court. The financial group's owner, a prominent businessman, Konstantin Zhivago, has denied wrongdoing. Ukraine has historically had issues with corruption and has redoubled efforts to clamp down on it despite the war with Russia. Anti-corruption efforts are also central to its bid to join the European Union.
0: After the break, the Auschwitz Museum in Poland begins the emotional work of preserving 8,000 shoes. They all belong to children before they were murdered at the Nazi German death camp. The restoration of a 2,000-year-old bronze statue of Hercules is underway. Stay tuned for a sneak peek of the progress when we return. Welcome back. A state museum in Poland has launched a two-year effort to preserve the shoes of 8,000 children that were the victims of a Nazi death camp. Many of the shoes are now warped and are in a state of decay, yet they serve as emotional testaments of the young lives brutally cut short. The Auschwitz-Birkenau
12: death camp in Poland was one of the most notorious set up by Nazi Germany during the Second World War. The museum at the site has started work to preserve 8,000 shoes that belonged to children who perished at the camp. This shoe belonged to a girl called Vera, who was transported to the camp with her parents and brother. Her shoe,
6: of course, stayed with us. After several years, when we started to compile a database of inscriptions from suitcases, we managed to link this shoe
12: to the suitcase of the girl's father. Workers in the conservation laboratory rub away dust and grime from the leather of the fragile objects. The shoes are then scanned and photographed and catalogued on a database.
3: Children's shoes are the most moving object for me because there is no greater tragedy than the tragedy of children. A shoe is an object closely related to a person. It is the trace of a child. Sometimes it is the only trace left of the child.
12: The museum is able to conserve about 100 shoes a week. The aim is not to restore them to their original state, but to render them as close to how they were found at the end of the war as possible. Most of the shoes are single shoes. One pair still bound by shoelaces is a rarity.
6: All the things taken from the victims, from the transports were put into warehouses, divided up by the type of material. Then they were repaired. Shoes were repaired prepared and sent to the Reich for someone else to wear,
12: because there was nothing, everything was lacking. Before the SS men sent people into the gas chambers, they ordered them to undress and told them they were going into showers to be disinfected. We
6: are able to imagine how many people came here, hoping that they would be able to put those shoes back on after a shower. They thought they would take their shoes back and keep
12: using them but they never returned to their owners. The death camps played a major role in the Nazi genocide of more than six million Jews, around two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population, as well as many thousands from other minorities. The 110,000 shoes in the museum's collection, while massive, most likely came from only the last transports to the camp. The project will cost $500,000 and is funded by the Auschwitz-Birkenau Foundation and the International March of the Living, a Holocaust education program. Germany was a key donor to the foundation.
0: A 2,000-year-old bronze statue of an iconic demigod is ready to shine again thanks to skilled restorers at the Vatican Museums. today's Andrew Thomas has the details on the Herculean task.
14: This 2,000-year-old statue of Hercules is being restored to its former glory. Every day, two restorers use scalpels to scrape away grime that time has left on the statue. This is one of the last stages of the project.
6: The most difficult thing in this restoration is certainly the removal of all the crusts that are found on the surfaces, which are caused by burial and are very delicate. We have tried different cleaning methods, but the only way is to work precisely with special magnifying glasses, removing all the small incrustations one by one.
14: The statue was originally placed in an elevated part of the theater of Pompeii, the largest in Rome. Scholars believe that a lightning bolt caused it to fall to the ground. The statue was discovered in Rome in 1864 in a pit surrounded by stone
2: slabs. The statue had the good fortune and misfortune of being struck by lightning, and it is said that sometimes being struck by lightning generates love, but also eternity. In this case, he got his eternity by falling from above and being placed in a kind of travertine marble shrine.
14: The Romans considered lightning a divine force, so the place that it struck became a sacred area. The electrocuted objects had to be buried on the spot. The smelters who made the statue fused mercury to gold, making the gilded surface more durable.
2: Studying stratigraphic layers, hence stratigraphic metallography, we have seen that the first gilding is with mercury. Mercury was added to gold and the surface was covered with this layer that adhered very strongly. The history of this work is told by its gilding, which is particular. It is one of the most compact and solid gildings found to date.
14: The final touches of the restoration are underway. By the end of the year, visitors will be able to admire this ancient statue of Hercules in all its glory. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: Just ahead, during Copenhagen Beer Week, attendees mix yoga with beer. Participants say the suds help them loosen up. Get the details right here on NTD News Today. (music) Ivory Coast is the world's number one producer of cocoa beans. Now one local entrepreneur is capitalizing on the African nation's popular export. NTD's and Andrew Thomas has sweet details.
14: Vivian Kwame first saw cocoa trees as a teenager growing up in Ivory Coast. The ripe pods on their trunks reminded her of babies clinging to their mother's backs. So she decided to pursue cocoa as a career. In 2021, she set up her own chocolate company called Chocovi.
12: Mon but c'est de pouvoir valoriser comme je le dis
1: encore je
12: My
6: goal is to be able to give value to chocolate made in Ivory Coast to give a note of nobility to the chocolate, to the cocoa of Ivory Coast to show to the eyes of the world that we can make good chocolate with our quality beans
14: Ivory Coast is the world's top producer of cocoa beans. But Kuami decided to go abroad to learn how to make
6: chocolate. There are the classic artisans who use blocks of chocolate that they buy called covers. My country is the first producer of cocoa, so I wanted to transform it. So I went to Italy to train on the process of transforming the cocoa bean to the finished product.
14: Kuwame sells her sweets domestically, but she's seeking investors to scale up the business.
6: At this moment, it's small trade. We don't have enough cocoa yet, so we are looking for any pots that are ripe for harvesting.
14: Guame's local customers are happy to be at the source.
6: I tasted the chocolate. It's pure. It's natural. I especially liked the box with the ginger, cashew nuts. THIS BOX WITH THE NATIONAL COLORS OF the IVORY COAST IS WONDERFULLY PRESENTED. I LOVE IT. I SAY THANK YOU TO CHAKOVI, TO THIS WOMAN.
14: Kouame EXPRESSES HER PATRIOTISM THROUGH HER ELABORATE PACKAGING. SOME CHOCOLATE BARS ARE SHAPED LIKE A MAP OF IVORY COAST. OTHERS ARE WRAPPED IN PAPER DECORATED WITH IMAGES OF THE AFRICAN NATION'S MOST POPULAR SPOTS. ANDREW THOMAS, NTD NEWS.
0: Variations of yoga are gaining traction with modern day fitness enthusiasts. During Copenhagen Beer Week, the practice gets an unexpected twist. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the brew.
14: Alcohol and yoga may not seem like a natural combination. At Copenhagen Beer Week, namaste has been replaced with cheers. Advocates say suds can enhance the experience by helping participants loosen up.
15: It's actually quite simple. Like, it's just a basic beer yoga well, yoga class where we drink beers, like where we're sitting, we're doing an exercise. Then we grab our beer, then we drink, and it's just nice and easy flow. Exactly. Yes.
14: Beer yoga is thought to have originated in the United States around 2015. Now the practice has spread globally to Germany, Mexico, Australia, Thailand, and beyond. Participants say it's a balance between detox and retox.
15: I think the alcohol is just kind of like a plus, because the alcohol sometimes make you feel more loose and more like going with the flow, thinking a little bit less. And so whenever she says, she says cheers, you're kind of just like cheering and then you forget about the rest of the people, at least that's how I felt. You forget that there's someone else there, you just, you just do you, there's no judgment at all.
14: The one-hour class started with a gentle warm-up and a sun salutation.
15: The beer yoga is making people happy and giving them body awareness or just having a nice experience. Maybe it's so much stuff going on in your life, and since this is so different, you're maybe a little bit more in the moment.
14: Participants were encouraged to try more challenging poses. Some may have taken a swig halfway through.
15: Some exercises, you know, if you're standing in a downward-facing dog, you can't have a beer. But then you can put your leg down and maybe drink from the side. So it's sometimes you do the pose and then you grab your beer, and sometimes you do it while you're drinking.
14: Some say beer can make yoga more approachable for potential yogis. Others suggest the beverage puts participants in the right headspace.
15: It should be basic. Everybody should be able to join because, you know, it's, it's about being together, not being the best or being something special. That's not where I am.
14: For these beer yogis, bottoms up is the new mantra. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
0: A tiger cub seized in an undercover sting is living large in its new home. You might remember in January, Arizona police arrested a man they say tried to sell a tiger cub to undercover officers for $20,000. The five-month-old cub named Ivy is now at the Wildcat Sanctuary in Minnesota. The accredited sanctuary often takes in big cats from high-profile cases. In fact, four cats there were seized from the Tiger King Park made famous by the Netflix series. Authorities say Ivy will live in a luxury in a free-roaming habitat with a heated indoor bedroom, tubs to swim in, and caves to explore. And all the nonprofit sanctuary has 130 rescued cats. You can learn more about them at wildcatsanctuary.org. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at NTD.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.